0: Hello and welcome to the Rev It Up podcast, helping entrepreneurs fill up their tanks, crank up the RPMs, and put the pedal to the metal until we cross that finish line. Hello, I'm Jess Tiffany. Ready, set, Hello, everybody. Thank you and welcome to the Rev It Up podcast. And we are super excited to have uh, Jim Citrin with us today. He's a noted expert on leadership, executive success and CEO succession. He's the author of seven books, including the international bestsellers, You're in Charge, Now What?, and Five Patterns of Extraordinary Careers, and the critically acclaimed The Career Playbook. He is working on a new book, which we're going to get into today, Leading at a Distance, How to Be the Most Effective Leader in a Virtual World. Jim is one of the foremost executive recruiters and leadership advisories and leads Spencer Stewart's North American CEO practice and is a core member of the firm's board practice as well. Throughout his 26 years, Spencer, Jim has completed more than 775 board director and top management searches for leading media technology, communications, consumer, financial services, healthcare, and energy companies, as well as private equity firms and major non-for-profit institutions. He is a 19-year-old member of Worldwide Board of Directors of Spencer Stewart. Hello, Jim. Thanks for being with us today. Great to be here, Jess. Thank you so much. I practiced that a few times, and I still stumbled. Sorry about that. <laughs> no All right. Well, thanks for being here today. One thing, uh, real quick, if you could just tell people where they can find you online and what's the best way to reach out. Well, thanks, Jess. I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm a
1: LinkedIn influencer, which I'm very proud about. And I use it as a repository to share some of my thinking and and, uh, research. And so if anyone wants to check that out, I'm at just under a million followers. So uh,
0: if a few more thousand would uh, cross that mark, I'd appreciate it. That's fantastic. So just real quick, so I only have 26,000 connections. I'm still on LinkedIn. I've, you know, some other platforms I'm pretty big on, but as well, but so how did you get from where you are to a million just cuz I got I got to know for myself. Well, as an author, as a researcher, but also as a practitioner about leadership and career success, I just started writing articles
1: and I was invited by LinkedIn to be one of the founding influencers and that was really before LinkedIn turned into what is effectively a very powerful media content sharing platform. And I think I've put up something like 75 or 80 or 90 articles over the last five or so years. But it's interesting as I'm sure many of your viewers and followers know, I think the way that people consume social media for sure has changed a lot. It used to be a lot of long form articles and then it changed to more video and more posts and uh, shorter things. But I have just follow, started a newsletter on LinkedIn and started following in the uh, the footsteps of kind of great LinkedIn influencers like Marshall Goldsmith and Arianna Huffington and a few others, uh, Adam Grant, who have newsletters as a repository for kind of a particular topic area. And that's what I started a couple of months ago called Leading at a Distance, which is all about what we're all experiencing now, which is the shift to virtual work, remote work, and how we can be effective as leaders, but also as individuals going through in today's environment.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, it is. Uh, the, the whole environment has radically changed over the last, you know, little bit here. But I, I do feel like it was already moving in that direction. Is that kind of what you're feeling too?
1: Yes. Actually, it's interesting. We've
0: done a lot of research
1: for the for this work leading in a distance. In fact, my Spencer Stewart- partner, a woman named Darlene DeRosa, who's one of the world's experts on virtual leadership. She's been studying this matter for over a decade. In fact, she did her PhD. This is actually quite hilarious. Mm. Darlene DeRosa, when she joined Spencer Stewart a year ago, she was telling me and, and us about her area of academic background and her PhD in virtual teams, And I kid you not, a year ago, I was like, that is probably the most obscure topic on the planet to do a PhD in. And why? why?" And she said, well, there's a long term shift toward teams working remotely. It's not just headquarter locations and field organizations. In technology and other fields, about 10 or 15% of workers are working remotely, and a lot of great talent. Really wants that flexibility, so I'm fascinated in how to create a culture, how to be an effective leader of virtual teams, leveraging technology, leveraging other things, and how to build trust and relationships. Like, okay, well, fast forward three or four months later, in March, when we all went down into into lockdown, mm-hmm. Darlene became a rock star, and she we brought her on with lots of clients to say. Here's actually how you conduct a virtual meeting. Here's if you're a board of direct, a board directors. Here's actually how you conduct a board meeting on Zoom or on Bluejeans. And if you're a manager, here's how you build trust. And so last, you know, over the course of the summer, we decided to combine forces. A lot of my research in history and leadership, and at the CEO level, and her deep expertise in virtual teams to come together for leading at a distance. And it's it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. But, but to the, to the to your question, Jess, it about ten years ago, it was a smart it was the beginning of a trend. A couple of years ago, it was maybe ten or twelve percent of the population. But today, you know, the statistics no surprisingly are off the charts of the number of organizations and
0: individuals working remotely. Yeah. I think even before COVID, I was about 90% virtual with the people we work with, but, but we're in the online space. And so obviously it's, you know, we kind of went to where the experts were versus trying to build an in-house team. So we basically set it up that way to begin with. But yeah, the trend has definitely massively inflated in the last, you know, since March, like you said. And uh, yeah, I totally can see why it should be a rock set because there isn't a lot of people that uh, have that expertise. So from your book and stuff and what you've been seeing, what are a couple maybe key takeaways of running those virtual teams? and becoming a leader at a a distance. I think there's a couple of things.
1: First of all, there's, we've all, everybody in this world has been kind of bound by this shared experience of COVID, economic crisis, disruption, racial injustice, political polarization. We've all, everybody's been going through a lot right now. And so, You have to really recognize that the environment in which leaders are leading are both a function of all of those trends, as well as the actual added complexity of working remotely and leading in a distance. And so I'd say that at a foundational level, and I, I don't want this to sound trite, but it's so true. We believe it so strongly. Leadership matters. It's always mattered, but I think it's never mattered more than now. People are looking to organizational leaders, looking to teachers, looking to family members, looking for some kind of direction as to what to think, what to do, how to prioritize. And so uh, there's this big, when it comes to companies, there's this big need and thirst for authentic leadership. And then there's the tactics of actually how you do that within a remote environment. But I'd say first and foremost, the authenticity, the transparency, the communications, the vulnerability, the real humanity of individuals is more important than ever before. And I say people who I've seen, people who are doing that, whether you're a CEO or whether you're a small team leader, that humanity today is more effective than ever before. But if you don't have it, and you're just trying to be Pollyannish, or if you're trying to bully, or you're doing things, people will tune you off absolutely full stop. Mm. So there's an opportunity for leaders to step up. And I think this goes back to the remote aspect. If you're working on Zoom or on, uh, on Microsoft Teams or something, I can't tell you how many employees have said, Oh, well, I've seen our CEO in a completely different light now. Or, Our team leader, our chief HR officer, he might have his 10-year-old twins in the background or, you know, someone's cooking. And one of the CEOs I interviewed for leading at a distance, and it's actually in the newsletter, is David Zaslav, the CEO of Discovery Communications. Discovery has all the media brands, the Discovery Channel, of course, TLC, but they also have HGTV and the Cooking Channel. And he, he said that they've shifted their programming and the methodology that they've done, their programming for a virtual world. And they've used, you know, their talent have taken production and filmed on their iPhones. Sometimes their kids or their family members are doing that. And rather than in the, in the studios fitted out, you know, state of the art, cooks have been doing it in their own kitchen. And this kind of shared humanity has made audiences there more receptive than than ever before. And I think the same is true in regular organizations when you have the dog coming or a babysitter or an older parent in the frame. I think it
0: breaks down barriers. Yeah, I think, yeah, I totally agree. Authentic- authenticity is, is amazing. And it's so much, yeah, to- like like you said, you see stuff that you didn't, you wouldn't have, you know, in a different light in the way people relate. I was interviewing um, Dr. Jen Welter. She's the first NFL football coach, female, the other day. And her dog, Tyson, was there during the whole interview, just snuggling in with her and stuff. And it, it is, it really is. A-
1: and so think about think about the emotional reaction that you, as an interviewer, or I'm sure your audience, seeing her, it creates totally different engagement with her that's brilliant the other thing interestingly is kind of people's backgrounds and seeing kind of like oh you're the clock there you have the bookshelf there and you know one of the most important things to do is not not assume that just because you're meeting on a video you have to get right to business right this second it's absolutely fine to say oh well that's an interesting drawing you know Tell me about that. Oh, yeah, my daughter was an art student at Dartmouth. She did that. and Or that. Why is that map like there? And you do a little small talk and you build rapport like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important and not to be underestimated. In fact, some people find that more important in a virtual environment than in a physical environment.
0: Well, I think it makes you realize people are real. You know, they're not, and more approachable too, especially with the people in leadership. And sometimes you, they're, you know, they're, you're they're, in your suit and tie and people are kind of like a, almost a little fearful of you. So I think it does open that, you know, that rel- relatability a little bit.
1: Well, you know, I, I was talking to uh, the CEO of one of the largest healthcare companies on the planet the other day, 150 or 175,000 employees. I'd actually met with him in his, you know, in his office and I said, how many employees have been in this conference room or your office where we met last winter Mm -hmm. out of your 175,000? He said, maybe 300, 400 over time. I said, so think about that. Now he's communicating to the entire global organization from his home. Mm -hmm. He's the one with two 10-year-old twins that were going in the background and just the breaking down of hierarchy is, is extraordinary. And so, and I've heard this from CEOs of companies, from Carol Tomei at UPS to John Donahoe at Nike, their accessibility is much greater than it ever has been before. That openness and the breaking down of hierarchy is is really good. But I'll tell you another thing. It's not just about communications and perception and vulnerability yeah. and authenticity, which is not to be overestimated. And you want to come back, communications but one of the big opportunities of working in this kind of environment has to do with decision making and i've heard a lot of boards i've heard a lot of executive teams talk about what they're calling the democratization of decision making and if you think about the dynamics of a normal in-person meeting and maybe some of those meetings was before this where Kind of a hybrid nature. You'd have some people from different international locations or different places calling in by phone or even calling in by video. Before this, they were kind of different tiers of participation. Mm. But even still, just around the conference table, you'd have different people and different angles contributing in different ways. But right now, if you have you know twelve people in kind of Hollywood squares <laughs> or the Brady Bunch of a Zoom screen, it actually makes it easier to have this eye contact Mm -hmm. and to have a facilitator. By the way, it's really important. Maybe it's the chairman, maybe it's the CEO, but maybe it's a designated meeting facilitator. That's one of Darlene's lessons. You need a facilitator for a group discussion to play that role, to move it around. But if you do that, then you can have everybody contributing on a much more even keel than just perhaps the more outspoken person versus the more introverted person. And as a result, I've heard a number of business leaders say that the quality of their decisions are actually improving Mm. the speed of reaching consensus on contentious issues is much faster now. And because everybody doesn't necessarily have to travel, you can start a conversation, let it germinate, provide some additional materials, and then two days later continue And reach consensus. Whereas before you wouldn't break because then people are traveling all over the place. So that's, it's a really interesting sort of place that we're in right now. And I I don't want to say that it's all good and all easy because if people are going through crisis and it is hard not being physically with people, but we're more adaptable than most people
0: I think would have believed nine months ago. And then I was I was also thinking kind of when you mentioned that the way the psyche works for the person like the the CEO giving the meeting and run, you know or running the meeting or talking whatever but them getting a peek into other people's lives in a way that they haven't had before I wonder how that affects their decision making from that point as well do you notice anything like that
1: Not really. I think
0: that the the key to the decision making
1: is having materials shared in advance, having open discussion about them, and then having everybody's points of view heard, maybe having a sense of the meeting first, and then coming back. I mean, I'll give you another example back to kind of the work, the client work that we do here at Spencer Stewart. We're the leading leadership advisory firm in the world. We lead in CEO search, CEO succession, board director recruitment, and back in the early spring... We had to help our clients shift from traditional ways of doing CEO and executive recruiting and board recruiting to doing it in a virtual way. Mm. And I'll give you an, an example because this has been written about publicly. We were in the middle of doing the CEO search for eBay. Everybody knows eBay, the online marketplace. And we, uh, we were kind of halfway through the search. And there were some amazing internal candidate and external candidates. and the board was scheduled to meet on March 22nd or something to meet with all of the shortlist of candidates. And instead of doing that, we went into a complete virtual process mm. for the next kind of six weeks. And it was actually extraordinarily intense, but it was March and it was, that board kind of came together and was sharing information and the candidates. We're having to have conversations like this over over video. And the quality of the conversations and the intensity of it actually was quite high. Mm. But at the end of it, there was more time, more quality time spent as a board and as a group and as the candidates. And as a result, in April, they appointed this amazing guy, Jamie Iannone. Jamie was the chief operating officer of Walmart's. Global e commerce business. Hmm. And he came into the company and started. And one of the rationales for the board was you know, many boards think, oh, I can't hire someone without having met them. I mean, you think about that, how many times you've had that. Hmm. But then it was like, well, the new CEO is going to have to start virtually anyway. So actually, you know, it's sort of the same. And once they said, yeah, okay. And so we've done that with many, many companies now. in. 2020. You know, we did that with Thomson Reuters. We did it with Virgin Galactic. We've done it with a number of companies as well, some not only externally appointed CEOs, but promoted from within CEO successors leading very intensive processes. Mm-hmm. So it's been a, a learning journey for kind of, I think, all of us, but also organizations
0: as they've gone together. And what process do you go through to find these? Because, I mean, you're really going after the creme de la creme or whatever you say of of CEOs out there. What's your kind of process at bringing those people to the front to go through the process to get hired onto these uh, positions? Well,
1: Jess, at Spencer Stewart, our firm is about 65 years old, and we were, sorry, about 60 years old. Our firm and, and a lot of our kind of core competitors, we were founded Years ago, out of the strategy consulting firms, Booz Allen Hamilton, McKinsey, and the like, the DNA of our firm is deep in strategy consulting. And so we start with like a good diagnosis and a process to understand what the leadership implications are of where, what the future strategy is. That's kind of the cornerstone of a CEO search or CEO succession, working with the board, sometimes with their outside advisors, sometimes with their management team to understand what is the current state of the company? Where does it want to go? What does it need to get from here to there, both strategically and also culturally? And then once you do that, then you define, well, okay, what does that imply for the critical experiences? What does that require for the capabilities? but also kind of the character of leadership. We define all of that into a detailed position specification that is goes through a lot of iterations, but that becomes kind of the foundation. Once we have that, then we say, well, what are the organizations on the, in the world that are the most kind of attractive and successful relative to those? So if you're doing a, a global hospitality company, what are the relevant hospitality companies or if it's a shift to digital what are the more online travel companies or Mm -hmm. if you're doing a financial services company and they're really focused on the future of financial technology or payments who's doing that so you go from the spec to a target list Mm -hmm. and then from the target list you do the research to say who are the leaders in those companies who are the most impactful on that. Again, in a firm like Spencer Stewart, we're in the flow of this all the time. We know people kind of at the top of the world's leading organizations. And then we will, we have relationships with them in many cases, and we will call them, we'll email them, we'll get a warm introduction and say, hey, Jess, you know, I'm working on a, on a major global CEO assignment. You know, you've been highly recommended and I'd love to See if this could be uh, something of potential interest to you now, or if so, great, if not, maybe you have a recommendation very straightforward process. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been doing it, you said in the nice introduction you get know, I've been doing it twenty six years, and our firm has been at this for a long time, and the leaders of our practices have a lot of relationships, so it's not cold calls yeah. You know, and we'll do that. And then we'll kind of work those who are interested. We will interview. We will assess against those criteria. We'll set up these board interviews. And it's kind of a, think of it as a funnel mm-hmm. from 150 ideas to 30 kind of great ideas to review with a the, with the board or a search committee coming out who are the top 10 or 12 that are most of interest. And you get five or seven out of those top 10 or 12 who might be interested at this moment in time. There are almost always internal candidates and we create an even playing field between our internal candidates and we treat them with the same amount of care, trust and respect as mm. any external candidates. And sometimes there are no external candidates. We just do internal succession mm. and benchmark them against the best out there without making any outreach and work with the board to facilitate the best decision. It's a fascinating process, and it gives us an opportunity to talk with the best leaders in the world, intimate topics of things that they're passionate about, that they care about, and it's a fit with their business interests and, you know, their real life and all of that. So it's very, you know, we're
0: very fortunate to be able to play that role. Wow. It sounds very interesting and, and very probably intricate on all the details you have to go through on that process, I imagine, as well. So, so shifting gears a little bit with like the social media and the LinkedIn and some of the outreach you're doing, how has that impacted your company and how do you leverage, you know, online marketing to kind of grow your company as well? I know you have a lot of pre existing relationships, so but I know you also do LinkedIn really well.
1: Well, I mean, as a firm, Spencer Stewart sure has 2,500
0: employees and in-
1: 55 offices around the world. So we're a series of, and we're a partnership, a private partnership. We are organized into practices and also geographies, but we're a global firm and everybody kind of really communicates uh, internally extremely well. We kind of think about social media in, I'd say, three different ways. Number one is we clearly use it as a way to supplement the proprietary Spencer Stewart database that we've built over the years in which we have about 10 million executives and all of their contact history and Mm -hmm. and all of their uh, resumes and references and all of that. That's really a kind of a crown jewel. But LinkedIn and other platforms have hundreds of millions. So And a lot of times people kind of coming up. And so we, like all of our competitors, tap into that. And by the way, not just our competitors, but most companies now in the world. Because thanks to LinkedIn and other databases and kind of the cultural kind of evolution, many companies, almost all companies now will have within their HR function, a talent acquisition team. When I started, that was not prevalent. There was no way to like know who's out there and then even how to contact them or get their resume. I mean, early on, that was kind of a part of the process. Now, in a Google and the LinkedIn world, information is ubiquitous and even the accessibility is much easier. So we use that as a way to supplement our own proprietary databases. Secondly, we will use it to, as I mentioned, to both share information and to share intellectual capital and to market and to put ourselves out there so that we can be seen as a thought leader in relevant areas that are uh, of interest. And then thirdly, I don't think, you know, anybody would be surprised, and this goes back to uh, advice you might give to college students or young people in their 20s, we will absolutely look at all the public social media information that's out there about candidates. And we'll put that in. A lot of times the people at this level will have given TED Talks or have YouTube videos or interviews. Some of them will write. So that'll be a part of the kind of information package. If someone puts things up that do not really reinforce their quality as the leader or their character, of course, that needs to be taken into account. So it's very much a part of the process on all of these different
0: methods and uh, all of these different aspects. Awesome. Thank you very much. And, and how do you drive revenue for your company? What's kind of maybe your, a few core pieces of keeping that wheel running? I'd say that because I, I know
1: a big theme of your podcast is revenue generation rev up. So I'll share that, but I will share an insight or two from this leading at a distance research that I've gotten about how some people are really driving revenue particularly in a virtual environment. You know, Spencer Stewart is a a retained advisory firm. We work with clients and sometimes we are asked, Jim or team, you know, we're thinking about doing a succession or we're thinking about doing an executive search or we're thinking about an advisory assignment. We'd like you to pitch for the business. And most companies, whether it's executive recruitment or leadership advisory, strategy consulting investment banking for IPOs, advertising, you know, you create, there are companies that just say, okay, who are the firms out there? We'll be in a competitive situation. And in that case, we'll have to really do our homework and present kind of, here's what we see, here's our assessment of the situation, and, and almost do a lot of the work upfront to say, here's how we would approach it. Here's our diagnosis, here are the leadership implications, here's our thought starters, et cetera and here's our relevant experience, and you know here are our references. So that's one way. That's their reactive way. Oftentimes, we try and be proactive and work with people that are companies or approach them and make sure that they know that if they're thinking about succession planning, board recruitment, this massive, we are the leaders in diversity and inclusion, particularly in the boardroom. We've recruited over 2,000 women directors to public companies in the United States alone. And since George Floyd and that horrible murder in May, we've done hundreds of recruitments for Black directors in the United States and diversity and inclusion on a global basis is a massive priority for us. So sometimes we'll be proactive about it. And then a lot of times it's kind of on a referral basis. It's like Oh, you since we work with a lot of boards, the average board is eleven people and they're on, on average two boards or two to three boards each. So a lot of it is, oh, you did this great process at eBay. Can you help us with this? And we worked you know, four years ago on that. And now so it's a little bit of that. That's how how we do it. But it's a it's a very competitive business and our competitors are really talented and really tough. And that's a good thing. We really I mean, I love to win assignments that are not competitive, but I also love to compete and we love to compete because, you know, we've got, you know, whether it's Egon Zender, Russell Reynolds, Hendrick and Struggles, Korn Ferry, they're brilliant people working really hard and we go at it really hard and it makes, uh, I think it makes us all better. But interestingly, it's part of the leading at a distance research. If anyone's interested in that, do check out the LinkedIn newsletter leading at a distance where I put up a number of these CEO interviews and some guides and things like that. And it is going to be a book published by Wiley in May of 2021. But interestingly, there are tactics where a lot of business development is accelerating, particularly in companies and industries that lend themselves to developing client or customer relationships online. Mm. I've talked to the CEO of a community bank today who is historically been only branches. And in the last eight months, they've done a dramatic acceleration to activating new customers digitally. And so they've got teams of kind of small and medium SMB kind of salespeople who historically were doing it very kind of brick and mortar and now it's digital, all the way up to the leading technology companies. What I'm hearing from CEOs of tech companies they are finding, and these are CEOs, not just sales leaders, they're finding it much easier to get appointments, to get conversations now because people are generally more available, even if they're all in Silicon Valley, you know, when they're kind of physically close, schedules are kind of blocked up. But to say, hey, can we visit for a half an hour on a on a Zoom call? If you're a CEO or if you're a chief revenue officer, you'll find that the barriers to Setting up those engaging meetings are absolutely easier. They're
0: lower and business can go faster. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I run a digital marketing agency and then we do LinkedIn is what my book is about. LinkedIn marketing and lead generation and all that fun stuff. And then we do publishing, but it's just absolutely took, taken off in that aspect. And then the lead generation, like you said, it's gotten a lot easier because people are more available. And so the LinkedIn lead generation is just super easy to get in touch with the right people at the right time and have, you know, just have a nice 15, 20 minute, 30 minute phone call and really get a lot of things done. And from my point of view, on the online side, a lot of, I've seen tons of people coming over from the physical world or, you know, physical into the digital and making that transition. And so I I totally can see exactly what you're saying is happening in my business as well. So very cool. But so I think you already answered, I was going to Ask them, tell people again where to find you. you said LinkedIn, your newsletter and your book uh, is coming out. And was it May next year? Yeah, May May next
1: year. We stay on this aggressive
0: time schedule. You know, now's the time. But
1: that's why I decided to do this LinkedIn newsletter, Leading in a Distance, because I wanted to get some of the lessons out there immediately and I'm not wait until a book is out.
0: Yeah. So just kind of wrapping up, but just because I know you're an author, how has that changed your business? Cause we do, we've published about 200 books so far, but I'm not a wily by any means, but has that really made a profound difference in your business? So the people listening, cause I always tell people they should get a book written if they can. So it's funny. I, my first book was called lessons from the top and it came out in 1998
1: hmm. and I was, you know, a young guy early in my career. And I had the idea I don't know how many of your audience will remember there was a business bestseller back in the eighties called in search of excellence Mm -hmm. and in search of excellence was written by two McKinsey partners, Tom Peters and Bob Waterman. And it did, who were the best companies in the world and what was their secret sauce? And what were the characteristics of great companies? I had the idea in 1997, wouldn't it be great to do the in search of excellence for CEOs? And We went through the process. I had a co-author, our chairman at the time, a wonderful mentor and friend of mine named Tom Neff, who is extremely well known. And we went, we did a huge analysis. Who were the 50 best business leaders in America? We did a rigorous quantitative study based on total shareholder return. We did a Gallup poll to get nominations. We merged and purged. And then we went out and this was everybody from Bill Gates and Michael Dell to Michael Eisner back in the time and Martha Ingram. I mean it was an amazing group of leaders. Wow. The process of getting to know them and interviewing them, that made it easier both for the next book and and also to your other question, Jess, it, it drove relationship building. Mm-hmm. Yep. And people loved, you know, I think a great piece of advice I give to young people or anyone generating business people don't want to be sold to. People don't want to be sold. People love to talk about interesting things. People love to learn. Bring some insight to a conversation. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, has been a big approach that I've followed. And we at Spencer Stewart, we're very intellectual capital led. We're not kind of salesy, we're not even the greatest marketers okay, marketers, but we're ideas and research led. And I think people find it really fun to talk about that stuff. Even in this leading at a distance work. my response rate for we've well, done like a hundred interviews, almost no one has said, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And we've done surveys and it's just a topic. So it's kind of fun and interesting. and We're chatting about it. There was a great book out a number of years ago. That's a, I think one of the Bibles of Selling and Business Development called The Challenger Sale. Do you ever know that book? I don't. I have a lot of books, as you can see, but I haven't got that one. (laughs) Challenger Sale, it was written by a couple of partners, a company called Corporate Executive Board, which was acquired by Gartner. Gartner, one of the great companies in America, led by one of the greatest CEOs in history, a guy named Gene Hall. Anyway, They put out this book called The Challenger Sale and they broke down kind of the six different paradigms of selling. I'm only saying this because I just think it makes so much sense and I've seen it that, you know, it's one thing to do traditional account management and that's pretty effective with the number of calls and yields and all that stuff. Like that's not what creates the greatest rainmakers, the greatest revenue generators. It's on the other side of that conversation if potential customers or clients say, I really learned something from Jess. He was really interesting. That translates into driving business. And that book kind of really was quantified that and I think gave advice to people on that process probably, I don't know, 10 10 or 15 years ago now. But that might be interesting if anyone in your audience is kind of in a sales role, to kind of up the game to be a much more
0: interesting, intellectually learning kind of strategy. Wow. A lot of nuggets there. I don't know if I can unpack all that, but that was <laughs> some, some really good things there. So, well, I want to tell you, I want to thank you so much, Jim, for being with us today. I mean, I learned a ton. So just like you said, learning, I learned something from you, learned a lot. And I'm sure everybody else listening is going to have the, the same experiences I had during this interview. Oh, and so thanks again for being with us. Any last parting words for the audience to help them get to the next level?
1: I think learning is a good
0: closing
1: word. And one of the things that in the surveys that we've done, with, we've done surveys of global chief HR officers and global CEOs as part of Leaving at a Distance. And one of the findings is that in the current environment, particularly working largely virtually, the access to learning opportunities is higher than ever before. And I think people's openness and receptivity mm-hmm. to learning and innovating is higher than before. Mm-hmm. And I think that if your audience can really focus on being, really open and really curious and finding new ways to get information, to get insights, to test things out. I think that'll really be the secret of success because we're all, no one knows where we're going. We know that change is happening and it's going to continue to accelerate. So the only real substantive sort of defense against that is to embrace it and the way to embrace that is to learn so here we are so i think that would be a closing thought for the audience and uh,
0: jess i really appreciate the opportunity to share a few thoughts and have a nice chat thank you thanks everybody for listening make sure to get your revenue up with jess tiffany rev it up and we'll talk to you again soon thank you